You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning. My name is Nicole Jones, and I'm part of the Roar Life Group. I'm going to be reading this morning in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth, they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you, Nicole. Hey, good morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. Under your chair, there's a connect card. If you would take a minute, fill that out. Um, Let us know how we can connect with you. Let us know how we can serve you, how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. Um, And if you are on your phone or your tablet or something like that, we use the ESV. If you would like a a Bible, you can raise your hand and Chad will bring you one. Um, Yeah. So if you've been with us the last seven weeks, we've been walking through Psalms of Lament. Um, We've begun to learn about this prayer language, and hopefully out of that series, out of looking at these Psalms, hopefully this has begun to equip you to lean into suffering, to lean into pain, to lean into hardship, and then to lean into repentance and worship. Uh, with maybe another tool in your tool belt. So today we're going to start a new series in the book of Ruth. And I think a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, this will be a continuation of our lament series. Uh, If you're paying attention, three dudes just died in that text. So this will be a a continuation in our, our lament series. And so like our lament series, my hope for you is that you would see God is for his people you would see that God is for his people. Which, if you are a believer of Jesus, following him with your life by faith, by means of faith, that means that God is for you. Man, I love so many things about the book of Ruth, and so I hope to cover most or all of those things uh, over, the next, over the next eight weeks. But here is one of the things that I love. Uh, it's one of the greatest short stories ever written. This could be like a vintage Disney movie. You know, it starts with once upon a time and ends with, and without spoiling it for you, it ends with, and they all lived happily ever after. And if you're a fan of rom-coms, a.k.a. romantic comedies, I call them rom-coms, this is some of those elements to it. Though sometimes it's more rom than com, uh, the similarities are there. There are two people who are so unlikely to end up together, and they find each other in the midst of some hardships, and they end up falling in love. And all of it occurs under the sovereign view 
under the sovereign hand of God, who is orchestrating these events to bring about the good and pleasing will that he has and to bring about his eternal rule and reign through his son, Jesus. He has been working since before creation, and this story is a story that from the onset seems hopeless. Again, three guys just died. Um, And yet, we're going to see God orchestrating it all. The good and the seemingly bad to bring about what he wants for not only the characters in the story, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. And we'll get to that. But today, we just need to set the scene for the remainder of our walk through Ruth. So here are a couple things that I want us to keep in view as we're walking through this short book together. I think many times we tend to view the Bible as a bunch of disjointed books or a bunch of disjointed stories or disjointed historical events or letters that are just thrown together and bound in a a leather-bound book that smells of rich mahogany. Um, And if you don't understand the purpose of the Bible, you will miss the point of these stories. These events, these letters, and the themes they contain, you will miss it if you don't understand the point of the Bible. So from the onset, we're going to talk about this. I want to tell you that we at this church believe that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God given through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is one story written from Genesis to Revelation over the course of several thousand years. It is a unified book of redemptive history with Jesus Christ as the center and Jesus Christ as the hero of the story. So when we look at different books in the Bible and when we look at different stories in the Bible, it's important for us to study these books and study these stories in their original context while keeping in mind how they point us towards the cross and how they point us towards the resurrection and how they point us towards the future return and the redemptive work of Jesus. And so as we're walking through the book of Ruth, I'd really ask you to lean into that. How does the story of Ruth push us to the redeeming love of God for us? This is a story about how God is continuing to rescue his sinful people. And it exists to serve us as a reminder of God's promised covenantal love he has for his people. And one other thing I'd call you to consider is this. I'd call you to consider God's global reach and God's desire for the nations to hear and respond to the truth of Jesus' redeeming love for his people. It's interesting to consider when you think about Ruth in the context of the Old Testament. Ruth is the only Old Testament book named after someone who is not Jewish by birth. And by the Old Testament standards, she would not be covered by the Old Covenant that God gave to the Jews as God's chosen people. And yet what we're going to see is God's mercy is extended to Ruth. And when we get to Boaz in chapter 2... And in the genealogy in chapter 4, God's mercy was extended to Boaz's mom too. Rahab, who, we'll see in, who you see in Joshua 2. And she was a prostitute from a pagan land. Not covered by the old covenant. And yet, 
What we're going to see is that in God's divine foreknowledge and in God's divine mercy, God would call these women into his family. And not only that, they are a vital part of God's plan for redemption that he would bring about in the person and work of Jesus. So may that knowledge, may that revelation through the book of Ruth push you to mission as well. Ultimately, I just pray that this series would, as, as we look at God's providential care for these widowed women, ultimately, I just pray that this would push you to more faith, push you to more worship, push you to more dependency on the God of the universe who sees you, who wants you, who calls you, who loves you, and is perfecting you in himself. So let's pray and get to work. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our great need for you. Lord, I pray that you would impress on our hearts this morning the ways that we are just like this nation, these people, willing to wander away from you, chasing every whim of our hearts. And Lord, may we also just see your divine grace and your divine mercy for wayward sinners. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed, that you would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed, Lord, but that we would not leave this room unchanged. Move in us. Stir us up for love and good works. Stir our faith. Stir our affections for you. Lord, I ask if, um, excuse me, church, I'd ask if you were willing that, that you would pray for yourself. That the Lord would impress on your heart yet again your great need for him. That the Lord would store, stir your desires and your affections for him. And that the Lord would reveal your idols this morning. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Ruth 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled. And I think we're going to stop right there for a second. Um, so the context of this book of Ruth is written at some point within the book of Judges, which in our English Bibles comes right um, before the book of Ruth. And it is 21 chapters of a giant cluster. Like, it, it is a mess. And it just seems to get worse and worse and worse as the book progresses. The book of Judges can be summed up like this. Judges 21, 25. This is the last verse in the book of Judges. It says, In those days there, were, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the book of Judges gives us a highlight of the nation of Israel at a national and political and local level. And the book of Ruth is a zoom in on one particular family during this time. So think about this. We're gonna, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, maybe you're not. There's um, a term used to describe what's going on here as the Judges cycle or the cycle of Judges. And it goes like this. The nation of Israel sins and wanders away from God, God then would send his judgment upon the nation through an oppressor, and it was often accompanied by a famine or a severe famine or other pestilences that was promised to the nation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, Blesses, blessings for obediences, 
and curses, a la famine, a lot of the time for disobedience. So God would send a foreign oppressor, and then the people of Israel would repent, turn away from their sin, turn away from their idols, turn away from their unbelief. God would then raise up a judge, a rescuer, who would run off or execute the, the oppressor, then Israel would be restored and would experience the blessing of God again. Then the judge would die at some point down the line. Then the cycle would start all over again. And for 400 years of history, this is the way that things went in Israel. And actually, as the cycle continued down the line, the judges would get more and more corrupt and less and less holy. So the first judge is a man named Othniel, who is a morally upstanding dude. One commentator calls Othniel a squeaky clean hero. And then the last judge is Samson, who is the most morally debased judge we see. Samson completely undermines what our expectations of a rescuer should be. He is a perfect candidate for anger management. He is drunk all the time. He's a liar. He's a womanizer. Ultimately, he does liberate the people from their oppressors, but he fails to establish rest and ultimate salvation for the people. And I think that's one of the points of the book of Judges, honestly. One of the points is that our ultimate, ultimate deliverance from sin Ultimate deliverance from disobedience cannot be accomplished through our own efforts. And our own obedience, it can't, be, it can't accomplish um, ultimate salvation. Because when left to ourselves, we are like the people of Israel in the book of Judges. We need a king to rule over us. We need a savior. Because left to ourselves, we all do what is right in our own eyes. And our hearts are so wicked and our hearts are so evil that we, on our own, do not naturally choose to follow God. We need his work in our hearts to call us to himself. So the last four chapters of Judges stand outside of this familiar cycle within the rest of the book and show us a nation that has completely wandered away from God. They're following the culture, they're following the lust and passions of their flesh, and the people who are supposed to be the people of God look exactly like the pagan nations that surround them. He who has ears, let him hear. So the book of Ruth is written during this time that the judges ruled the land. Ruled the land. I said ruled the rand. <laughs> um, so at some point in this 400-year period, period we just discussed, we have this family. So from the beginning of Ruth, we're introduced to this family. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. There was a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. In an ironic twist of storytelling, there is no bread in the house of bread. So this man packs up his family and his wife and their two sons, and they take off to Moab. Initially, this does not appear like a big deal. This doesn't appear like there's anything wrong with this decision, right? This man looks around at his circumstances. He's like, we've got no food. Our 
Cows are starting to look more like veggie burgers than real beefcakes. Certainly, it has got to be better in Moab. Let's go. But here's a glaring issue that we must understand. This man, Elimelech, that's really fun to say, Elimelech, is a Jewish man, and he would know the promises of God to the nation of Israel. God has given this land as a possession to the nation. This is the land of promise. It was meant to be like a new Eden for the nation of Israel. God blesses the nation's obedience with peace and prosperity. And prosperity in this agrarian culture would be indicated through abundance and prosperity of their fields and crops and herds. On the other hand, God would punish their disobedience through oppression and through famine. Again, we read these promises in Deuteronomy, and this man is familiar with this. And so we're presented as readers, we're presented with this famine. There is a famine in Bethlehem. This should have led to repentance, national repentance, because with the promise of famine came the promise of restoration and peace for repentance. But everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. So this man and his family pack up to pursue greener pastures. And the text tells us they went to sojourn. So we know that initially they were not intending to stay in Moab. This was meant to be just a temporary reprieve, a temporary respite. But look what happens. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. This man, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, does not act at all as if God is his king. Sinclair Ferguson says that instead of turning back to the Lord, this little family turns their backs on the Lord and heads to Moab. Megan, when she was reading my my manuscript, pointed out to me that the first five verses in Ruth, it's the only scene in this whole book of Ruth that God is not mentioned. So that is reinforcing that Elimelech just flat doesn't think about God and his decision to move. Another interesting thing, Tony Morita makes a a good distinction that I think we need to discuss between the behavior of Elimelech and his family and the behavior of, say, like political refugees or people who have moved out of desperation like people do today or even people in general who can serve God faithfully in Odessa, Texas or Odessa, Ukraine. Um, Things are just different for the people of Israel because... God promised his people, this people, this nation, the nation of Israel, that his presence would dwell with them in this land of promise that he had given them. God promised to bless the nation of Israel there in that land, should they walk in his ways. It is clear, given the context of the book of Ruth, that Elimelech's move is a move away from God. And it's rooted in a lack of faith. It's rooted in disobedience to God. 
He takes his wife Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet. Southerners would call her sweetie pie, like things like that. That's kind of the, the thrust behind her name. And his son Malon, which means sick. And Chilion, which means frailty or, or mortality. He takes them to the land of Moab. Scholars would say um, these names were not their given names, um, most likely. I mean, how many of you who are having kids would be like, I think I'm going to name him Coronavirus, and I, th- I think I'm going to name her Influenza. Like, these names are in place to give the readers a foreshadowing of what's about to happen. The text again tells us that they're from Bethlehem and Judah. New Testament, uh, New Testament readers and later Jewish readers would know that this place is the place where David reigned as king, the place where David was from, um, the line of David. And New Testament readers would know that this is the birthplace of Jesus, their eternal king. This is the second time in two verses that Bethlehem is mentioned. So surely something good is about to happen here, right? And by the end of verse 2, we see their little sojourn had turned into a permanent residence. Sort of like when I set out to sojourn in Odessa ten and a half years ago. It's it's permanent. I'm here, baby. Um, One other thing we we need to know about this whole thing. Leaving Bethlehem, leaving the promised land was not a wise choice. Heading to Moab was an even worse choice, and I will tell you why. The Moabites, they traced their roots back to, you can read the story in Genesis 19, um, an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. They had a kid, his name was Moab. This happened after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Later, we will see the king of Moab in in the book of Numbers hire a prophet to try to get him to prophesy curses against God and his people in Israel. The Moabites would lead the Israelites to idol worship and to participate in sexual immorality as pagan practices. And in response, God would have none of this, and he wiped out 24,000 of the nation of Israel for their disobedience. And in Judges 3... My favorite story in Judges because of some awkward bathroom humor and how the, how the judge Ehud rescued, Moab was actually the nation that was oppressing Israel. Moab was detested by God. In Psalm 60, God says, Moab is my wash basin. A wash basin would be where one would wash one's feet. And feet were the most detestable parts of the body back then. Washing feet was a task reserved for the lowest of the low in society. Moab and Israel were meant to remain separate from one another. Uh, a small sidebar here before like, we like, start thinking that that sounds mean and cruel of God. Um, the reason that this is true is because the Moabites worshipped idols. And they did not worship the Lord. And they would lead the hearts of God's people astray. This is a protective measure by the Lord in commanding separation for some nations and annihilation for others. God will fight for and defend the hearts of his children to some great and extreme lengths. That isn't to say 
that if a Moabite would turn from their idolatry and follow the God of Israel, then they were still under God's wrath. No, again, this book is going to highlight a global and missional reach of God and a global desire for people from all nations and tongues and tribes on the face of the earth to worship the true and living God. Spoiler alert, next week Ruth is going to turn from her idols as a Moabitess um, and therefore be grafted into the people of Israel. But on a national level, Moab and Israel had no diplomatic ties or relational ties. Moab was an enemy of God's people. And Elimelech, knowing this full well, leads his family right into that place. And they stayed. And that's when things got really bad. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Elimelech dies. So we have Naomi left with these two young sons. By this point, Elimelech's... The more I say that, the harder it gets. Uh, Elimelech's family is completely assimilated into this pagan culture. One commentator says that apparently this family feels more at home in the land of compromise than in the land of promise. It was at this point Naomi could have returned. She could have gone back. Who knows if she had any say in going to Moab in the first place, but after the death of Elimelech, she sure does. And yet she chose to remain in Moab. And this road of disobedience leads to more and more compromise and more and more heartache. Look at verse 4. These two, the sons, they took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. The author doesn't spend any time commenting on the nature of these marriages, but the law of Moses given in the first five books of the Old Testament and what we just discussed about Moab, um, both of these things would seem to suggest that these women are pagans from a pagan nation worshiping the god Chemosh, uh, and the law would have condemned this union. They're being disobedient to God. Verse 5, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now things have gone from bad to worse. You had no food, so you compromised. And then the husbands and sons die. The husband and sons die. Of the four original pilgrims to Moab, only one woman was left. Prior to the death of her sons, like Naomi was still okay. She was still in an okay situation in her life. Now she has no men in her family in a patriarchal society to, prov- to provide for her or provide for her daughters-in-law. And she's in a foreign land offering her no protection because she's a foreigner and because she's a woman. Man, oftentimes for us, We can choose to step out of God's revealed will for our lives. And oftentimes we do so knowing full well what we're doing. Oftentimes we make compromise after compromise after compromise. And oftentimes these choices are deliberate. And they're rooted in our own pride. They're rooted in our own preferences. They're rooted in our own comfort. They're rooted in our own disobedience and unbelief. And what sin teaches us is that it will always take us further and further 
away from God and his gifts than we ever thought was possible and than we ever intended to go. And what sin also teaches us is this. It's oftentimes so much easier to remain in sin than to swallow our own pride in return. Our sin blinds us and it tells us that it's much easier to just stay. It's much easier to just sit in the pain and the suffering that sin is causing us and the devastation that it is wrecking on our lives. It's much easier to stay there than to repent and believe that God is working to restore us. We have convinced ourselves that it is easier to remain in our brokenness than to pursue fullness and fulfillment in the God of love. We play this narrative out in our head that there's something wrong with us and we're too far gone. And that's a lie. Listen, man, God is serious about sin. And God is also serious about his promise that he made to his people. God will not leave us. God will not abandon us. God will not forsake us, but he will discipline us for holiness. The fact that there are no children in this family is also a sign of God's judgment against this family. Now, I want to tread very carefully here, as I know that some of us have dealt with or are currently experiencing pains of miscarriage and infertility. That is not God's judgment on you. That is not God punishing you for something. In this family, though, during this time in history, this is evidence that God is not blessing this family because they are being disobedient. Ian Dugan says that, um, he says a couple of things. He says, God's judgment on sin is reliable because his word is faithful. But even more consistent is God's desire to restore wandering sinners to himself. Grace is always God's last word. Israel uniquely experiences these physical blessings and curses as a foreshadowing of the final rewards and judgments to come on the last day. Yet, the spiritual realities to which these signs pointed remain the same. The way of unfaithfulness, the way of disobedience to God continues to be the way of death. Ruth 6 and 7. Excuse me, Ruth 1, 6 through 7. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. This is where we're going to leave Naomi for the week. She's in a foreign land amongst the foreign people without a husband, without sons. They have no offspring. Only two pagan daughter-in-laws for her trouble that she's now accountable to. She hears that the Lord has restored the fortunes of Israel. So next week we will see her return to the land of promise. But for our purposes today, we would just leave the narrative right here with a small glimmer of hope. And man, we all need this. We all need this in our life. We all need hope. We all need something to hope in. 
I think we can all identify with Naomi at some level. Maybe not to this extreme. Maybe exactly to this extreme. But we have all experienced loss and suffering. So I want us to approach these devastating five verses that are opening us up to the book of Ruth for the next few weeks as people living in the post-resurrection of Jesus' times. One thing to consider, the fact that Naomi isn't dead means that God's still working. We often like to think about God working in our lives as a comforting truth, and it is. Man, it really is. But oftentimes, we don't like the results or the process to experience God's, God's working in our lives. But let's just keep in mind real quick the main purpose of our faith, the whole purpose of our faith. The purpose of following Jesus, the purpose of our Christian walk, let's keep that in mind. It is not limited to the blessings of God, the rewards we get from God. Like, that's all great and praiseworthy, and I think worthy of the pursuit. But the goal of our Christian walk is that we are all like Christ, who is perfect and blameless, holy and set apart, full of grace and truth. And we are made like him as we grow in our holiness and as our salvation is being worked out with what the Apostle Paul uh, describes as fear and trembling. Our faith is being perfected through our sanctification, meaning the process of being made more and more like Christ. When we fix our hearts and our minds, our affections and our pursuits on Jesus in the things of Jesus, then we become more like Jesus. And that's the point. Bob, Bob Thune says it this way, the gospel is not just the means of our salvation, but the means of our transformation. It's not simply the deliverance from sin's penalty. That's good news. But it's also the release from sin's power. That's even better news. The gospel is what makes us right with God. And it is also what frees us to delight in God. And if you're a Christian, like really a Christian not just a verbal acknowledgement of some facts that you can regurgitate, but if the truth of the gospel that Christ came, lived a perfect sinless life, and died the death that you deserved, died in your place in order that you may be forgiven and restored, if that has taken root in your heart, then you've been invited to follow God by faith in him through his grace and mercy to you. And when you sin which you will, God is pleased to forgive you. And sometimes it takes suffering and it takes hardship to show us our need for God. God disciplines those that he loves. So as Christians, when we are outside of God's will, God lovingly brings us back to him. And sometimes we are stubborn and we're hard-headed and we're obstinate and God's grace prevails to lovingly restore his people back to himself. What we're going to see in our walk through Ruth is that God's grace will transcend our rebellion. God's kindness, 
allows us to not only return back to him, but it also allows our hearts to be softened towards his goodness and his nearness in the midst of pain and suffering. Even pain and suffering created by our own disobedience. And it will allow us to return to the welcoming embrace of the arms of the Father. Man, the Spirit of the Lord works in our hearts to call us back to him. Like Naomi, we can leave the land of compromise, swallow our pride, and start the journey home to the welcoming arms of Jesus. Can we just be honest with ourselves for a minute? When you understand the depths of your sin, when you understand the depths of your depravity, we ought to be like Elimelech and his sons. Dead in our disobedience, dead in our own rebellion, and apart from Christ's work to you, we are spiritually dead with no hope of making ourselves alive. But God, the two most important words in the Bible, but God through the Son's death, by His grace, the unmerited favor of God to you, and by His mercy, through the free gift of salvation, has made you alive in Christ. Listen, man, we're all just like Elimelech. We are all tempted to leave the comforts of Christ for the fleeting pleasures of this world. We're all tempted to leave the fold of Christ for a better job, a better situation, a better spouse, a better town, a better house, or anything else we feel entitled to. We choose our own Moab instead of choosing Christ. Again, a woman Lex name means my God is king. And yet, for a God is no king at all. Elimelech's the uh, ancient Near East version of a cross tattoo or a cross necklace on a person that makes no consideration of Jesus. Instead of following God in faith and dependency, Elimelech moves his family on his own impulses away from the promises of God. Some of you men need to take note here. Elimelech functioned as his own king. What about you? What about you? When you make decisions, are you vetting your decisions in the word of God and within the context of community? Or are you just doing what seems right and practical and convenient? What is going to provide me with the most comfort? Or rather... What is going to give God the most glory? Consider this about the scriptures. Devante insightfully shared this with me yesterday. He said when, when God inspired the scriptures, it was a community book. Most of the New Testament was written to churches. The scriptures were not meant to be read in isolation. And without the interpretation of community, like there was none of this me and God type faith in the first century. 
Scriptures were not meant to be read in isolation and without the interpretation of community. Neither are our decisions meant to be made in isolation apart from Christian community. And a lot of us don't lean into this gift of God to us. And a lot of us end up wondering why our decisions that we make in isolation leave us feeling worse than we felt before. Again, let's just be honest Can we, for a quick second, just be honest? And I'm probably going to step on your toes. And I want to do so because I love you. I've done this job long enough. I'm in my 15th year of vocational ministry. I've done this job long enough to watch a lot of people who I love make decisions without one thought towards the will of God in their lives. And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of us, people who would say that, yeah, we're Christians. Oftentimes we make decisions without the word of God in view. Just take an honest assessment of your life for a second. If we are really honest, and I don't say this to your shame or your guilt because I am one of these people too, we rarely think about God when we make decisions for our lives. We often even spiritualize these decisions. I feel like God is leading me to do this, or God told me thus. And yet, our lives are not often reflective of the calling of God on your life. And we rarely think about this decision. Whatever it may be, how is it going to impact my ability to function as a Christian in a world that is hostile towards Christ? Are you like Elimelech, saying that God is your king and living a life that would suggest otherwise? Jesus asks you the same thing. In Luke 6, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Christian, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross. To not only save you, but for you to follow him by faith and dependency in him. Christian, your sin required a payment. And it isn't a payment you could ever afford on your own. You needed a sinless Savior, a perfect Savior, and we have that in Jesus. And yet a lot of times we function like Christ is just our fire insurance policy. Saying a few churchy words to keep us out of hell and never really submitting to the lordship of Jesus for our lives. This Jesus who endured the cross, despised and rejected for us so that we could have life and have life in and through him. This Jesus who is no longer buried in a tomb, but rose, defeating sin and death. Somebody shout amen. I implore you, church, to consider the magnitude of the cross for you. And consider this. If you would claim to be a Christian, is your life reflective of the things that you say you believe? Or are you just elimelecking your way through life? Man, look at the consequences of disobedience in this one particular family in five little verses of Scripture. 
death and despair. And yet, thanks be to God, that's not the only five verses in this book. What the story of Ruth is going to teach us, and I'm almost done, what the story of Ruth is going to teach us, what the cross and resurrection of Jesus teaches us, is that God will not let his promises to his wayward children falter. God will bring about his pleasing good will for us. In all things, God is working for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Man, one thing I just really love about this story is that God is not reactionary. Like He's not up there going, oh shoot, Elimelech took off to Moab. God in his sovereignty, God in his divine foreknowledge, knew that Elimelech was going to make a foolish decision and that he was going to move his family away and that he knew his sons would marry pagan wives. And to a large degree, that is our story as well. We have all wandered away from God at various points in our Christian journey. Maybe you're even wandering away from God right now. And it's God's kindness that's showing you that. And God's grace and mercy welcomes you back. Welcomes you back into the loving arms of Christ to restore you to forgive you, and to not put you to shame. Man, because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, God looks at you and he says, not guilty. Come on in. God's grace to you is not limited by your circumstances. God's grace to you is not limited by your disobediences. However, Christians, we do have to respond to him by faith in obedience to him. We have the luxury here, unlike Naomi, of knowing how the story ends. If you want to read ahead, do it. It's great. Naomi's suffering is not the final word for her. Your suffering or the consequences of your sin are also not the final word for you. The cross gets the final word, Christian. For believers, the cross speaks life over you. And for unbelievers, it speaks death over you. Our suffering and our sin as Christians are not the final word. But these verses do serve as a warning for us. God is not honored by your disobedience. And God will turn your heart back to him. Even in the midst of disobedience as a Christian, God will turn your heart back to him by whatever means he sees fit. The process of following Jesus is often hard, yet the process of redeeming sinners to himself was hard and painful because the sinless Savior died, and he died to purchase you. May your response to that not be ambivalence and not be apathy, but faith in the completed work of Jesus to you. May you turn from your sin. May you turn from your waywardness and follow God wholly and completely. Let's pray.